Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and today we are going to do another short, sharp episode where we revisit some of Warlord's games that we haven't talked about in a little while. Now, the Warlord release schedule is often tied to, um, I'm sorry, the podcast often tied to the release schedule of new games and new supplements, but in this series we are going back and revisiting uh, some of the fan favorites and some of the games that we've talked about in the past, and we would love to talk about and talk to the people who developed them again. And today we are going to talk to one of my favorite game writers, game designers, game guru, game god. Ooh, it's a it's an exciting day when the man, the myth, the legend, Rick Priestley walks back into the studio. Rick, welcome back to the Warlord Cast. Uh, hi, hi, Brad. As usual, I shall fail to live up to that <laughs> glowing introduction. I tried to keep it under a minute this time, Rick. Usually when I have you on, I pull out the laundry list of games that you've been associated with. And if if only the Warlord games, I mean, we could be here a while. Um, your accolades are many and uh, your resume is long. So shall we just uh, mention briefly in uh, a few seconds, um, Black Powder, Warlords Verawan, Gates of Antares, helped develop the some of the rule systems for bolt action. I mean, you've had your fingers in quite a few of Warlords pies over the years. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, when I left Games Workshop, um, John uh, Stallard, of course, is the uh, number one guru at uh, mm -hmm. uh, Warlord. Uh, he um, he asked me to um, uh, well, help out or come on board or do whatever. But uh, in the end, I decided to keep a. Um, a bit of a distance, but uh, I, I am sort of uh, there. I, let's say they, if I have projects or things I want to do, Warlord are my first port of call. Right. And if there's anything that um, uh, they, uh, they they want me to do specifically, then uh, I always uh, they, you know, I always give them some due consideration. I, I do work for other people too, but uh, on the whole, Warlord are my um, uh, first first stop, as you might expect, because they're mostly my old old friends and uh, and workmates. Mm -hmm. Now you yeah. have, you have been on the Warlord cast at least twice previously. Once discussing Warlords of Erewhon when it came out, uh, and once discussing Black Powder Second Edition. Um, now you've also been on Cast Dice, the podcast that shares this podcast's network. Um, the, the Warlord cast is on the Cast Dice podcast network. So if you're looking for it in the iTunes Store, for example, you can find it there under cast dice c-a-s-t-d-i-c-e now you've been on cast dice several times to talk about warlords of erewhon as well so if if you are listening to this episode and you're thinking man i wish i could find more podcast content about warlords of erewhon ladies and gentlemen it exists just search up uh warlords of erewhon in uh your apple podcast app just warlords of erewhon which is nowhere backwards and you will find uh, many a Rick Priestley conversation on this network. So if you want more after today's episode, that's a good place to look. But Rick, um, let's let's actually get to you. Now, we as, as a gaming community have sort of taken a deep breath in and we appear to be holding it at the moment. Um, the, the world has largely stopped for us other than painting and people figuring out how to play games online due to social distancing. Um, I know that prior to all of this kicking off, you were playing a lot of Black Powder and Warlords of Erewhon. Um, how are you passing the time these days, sir? 
Um, well, there's just so much to do, isn't there? I mean, it's uh, uh, oddly enough, I think being confined to the uh, boundaries of uh, the house simply means I've had to do all those things which we all have to do, <laughs> and we always put off when we, when we can. So uh, I've spent a lot of time in the garden, getting our garden ready. Nice. Um, and uh, I've, I've actually repainted the... Uh, my walk-in room is a separate building. It's a stable. It's an old stable. Amazing. Uh, and uh, it was... Um, it was converted a few years back, uh, and of course, it's got to the stage now where all the stain, all the wood stain, needs redoing. So I, I, I did all that. Uh, so I've, I've been out on ladders, sanding, messing around, mm. painting, you know. And then I'm looking at the outside of the house and thinking that could use repainting. So uh, yeah, I think I've been keeping busy doing non-wargaming things because you, you do all that. Yes. And you, um, your mind, your mind invariably turns to, uh, to to projects you'd like to work on and ideas, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's that too. I spend quite a bit of time unpainting these days. Unpainting is the process of taking badly painted miniatures and dropping them into Dettol or some mm-hmm. sort of um, uh, paint stripping uh, material, yep. and uh, res- restoring them back to their glowing 1970s original condition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, so, like so, so what have you been stripping recently, Ray? Uh, mostly old minifigs. What, uh, I'm, I'm, this is something which um, probably people my age will probably empathise with, and anyone substantially younger will probably think he's utterly mad. But um, I started off wargaming seriously with in the days when figure manufacturers were minifigs, Hinchcliffe, Garrison. Mm-hmm. That was it. There were a few more. There are a few more, but really those are the big three. And um, what I've been doing is going back and collecting some of the minifigs figures that I ever had or mm-hmm. didn't have, particularly the early 70s to mid-70s. Nice. So it's that kind of area. area. So then 25 mil. So it's that kind of period. And what um, specific races or creatures yeah, are we doing? Sorry, what? Uh, well, uh, well, there's there's several ranges. Really. There's the old, there's the the very original fantasy range. Mm-hmm. It's called the ME range, the mythical Earth or Middle Earth range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you you might be aware of it. You see, it's always it's ME one, ME two, and it's ME is the uh, title. And um, it was a sort of a Lord of the Rings esque range, but it was made mm-hmm. without any kind of license. Yes, which got them into a bit of trouble in the end. But uh, that was the first fantasy uh, range that was available, and it was the first fantasy figures that my friends and I bought and created armies to play Lord of the Rings battles with. Mm-hmm. So, so really, that's the start of my fantasy wargaming. Now, what uh, uh, what rules were you using way back when, when you guys were uh, playing out these fantasy battles? I ask because it, you are famously part of the team that developed many a Warhammer product over the years. Sure, yeah. Um, we What did we use? I think we used more than one rule set, but it, it, originally we used um, the WRG ancient rules mm-hmm. at the time, the War Games Research Group ancient rules, which, again, people in my generation will uh, be familiar with. They were very much the standard go-to ancient War Games rules at the time. Um, but you could convert them fairly easily. And because we, we weren't thinking terms... We weren't thinking in terms of very high uh, spectacular fantasy. Lord of the Rings is quite it's quite historic in terms of its battle descriptions mm. and fighting, so it was quite easy to translate. 
Uh, and we uh, we used those, but there was also uh, there were any number of other sets that came out that were similar, which we certainly gave a try, including a set called Wizards and Warfare, which was um, based on WRG Agents, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know we used it because I found my copy the other day. It's got all my pencil notes in it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, changes that I, we'd made to that set of rules. Um, and then we produced, we actually, I'm sure we did our own. We, we must have made up uh, uh, rules as well. Uh, and it, it was one of the, it was one of the things that we used as a basis for rules development. Uh, and it, you know, one of the, one of the things that inspired us to start creating our own rules. Um, and I think the things we would have based them off would be stuff like the um, Tony Beth rule set, mm. uh, which appears in War, uh, Wargaming by um, Don Featherstone. Nice. And that's a little bit Warhammer-esque. Yeah. You know, it has that sort of, um, you know, you're rolling dice for uh, uh, kills and for saves and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and so on. I, I, I I think there were a few other, I've certainly got some other rule sets, whether we actually played them or merely um, uh, bought them and crypt good, good bits, I don't know. Well, um, those those yeah. rule sets have something in common with something that you've done recently, um, which is that for the large part, they were, and, if, and please correct me if I'm not correct in this, but from my understanding of reading about a lot of those game systems, because I haven't played most of those, is that they were miniature agnostic. They were games that, here are some rules, use your toy soldiers, you can take your toy soldiers and now put them on the tabletop to play with. Um, yeah. And now you have created Warlords of Erewhon, which is a very modern uh, war game that you can now play, but it's also miniature agnostic. So you can take any of your fantasy models out of your toy box and put them back on the table and go, um, which yeah. is, you know, a fantastic for those of us who have uh, <clears throat> deep closets. Uh, yeah. Is that? Am I summing this up right? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's There's no specific world. There's no specific background. Right. Uh, it's a set of uh, it's a set of rules or a rules engine. Mm-hmm. Which you can use to create any, uh, 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 recreate any uh, fantasy background of either fictional or, or TV movies or your own imagination. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been. It's one of the reasons why I, I'm a bit reluctant to keep doing more armies for it because it's endless. I mean, essentially, the process is mm-hmm. uh, one whereby you, you're creating your own armies. is half the fun. It is. And I know some people don't quite see it like that, but that's that's kind of where I get my. Uh, uh, enjoyment out of mm. uh, things like that. And constructing the basic system so that it's completely flexible in that sense it is. was the challenge. Mm. Yeah. Um, so there's no IP. And of course, if, if, if some people do, or some players do ask me if, you know, if we can have a list for, say, Vampire Counts mm-hmm. or for um, uh, or, or Chaos, by which or they invariably mean. Mm-hmm. Demons, yeah. Uh, but they usually mean some, some. What they usually mean is the demon army I have for uh, Zinch or for Nurgle or for mm-hmm. the Games Workshop sort of affair. Well, the, the thing about the Games Workshop demons is they're a very specific take. They are, uh, and uh, it's quite you know it's a very specific IP, and it, it, it yeah I, I'm reluctant to start to just reproduce that IP. I've done it to some extent where I felt that it was sufficiently generic with the. Um, 
the kind of not lizard man list mm-hmm. and the um the not scaven list if you like you know yes. the ratters the ratters mm-hmm. yeah um because i thought that was sufficiently uh sufficiently generic and also i tried not to um, not to impinge too much upon the the concept that uh uh, especially where it is uh, where it is specific to games workshop i didn't, right. didn't do that um but part of the problem is of course is anything that comes from me tends to go down similar routes it's a bit, it's a bit like a railroad you know uh-huh. uh you know when i was working at games workshop that there'd be very rick-esque ideas and concepts uh and some of them you know, work their way into the games and are still there mm-hmm. and i uh, and it's the same when I start something afresh, you can't help it. Your mind goes down the same track. Exactly. And you end up in a similar place. Um, just, just because that's the way it is. Uh, but you, so you have though, you have a, a website, this gaming life, um, where sure. this gaming uh, for those who are interested in warlords of Erewhon and have not found the website, um, on that, you not only have, FAQ and you have errata and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but you actually have an updated version of every single army list in the book. Now, for those who aren't familiar, there are, I believe, 10 full army lists and then monsters that you can add to army lists in the book itself. Um, and each of course has its own summary page. Each has its own, um, design notes, uh, to give you an idea of the flavor of what directions you could go at the beginning. Um, and that in and of itself, when you buy a game, to have that in the core hardback book is amazing. But then to see you keep adding to it. So now I believe if I'm adding correctly, you are up to 18 lists. Um, oh, could be. Do you know I haven't counted them? Yeah. I'll just keep adding more. Um, keep adding and adding and adding. Um, but you also put out, as you said, um, as you alluded to earlier, you've put out the the point values for the game. Now that's something I have never seen a game developer do. You've actually given your audience, your players, the tools to create whatever army list they want. It is an open sandbox, so to speak. Um, now I personally love going through the list that you make, um, but I have messed around with those tools to see how they worked, but also so I could take some of my existing ancient uh, uh, gothic science fiction uh, powered armor marines models and see if I could put them into Erewhon, and it works, and it's amazing. So, Well, I haven't done that, so that's good to hear. But you have opened up the chest for everyone. Um, you've made this the most accessible war game, I think, that literally has existed in that anyone can make anything, um, but the game balances because you've created the point system to make it work. Um, can you talk a little bit, I mean, I know we've talked about it on Cast Dice in the past, uh, sure. why have you gone down this route of ar- free army lists on your website that you can download anytime? That's the other thing, 18 free army lists for this game. Um, and you've given your players the point values to create their own. Talk to us about your mentality in, in doing this. Um, yeah, I don't know really. It, it's probably the same mentality I've always had. Um, it's just that uh, it, I, 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 I thought 
I uh, I wanted to do a fantasy game, mm. and I wanted to do a warband-based game or skirmish-based game. Um, so I, I, I played a lot of that sort of sort of game in my sort of late teens, and the early Warhammer was a little bit like that too. And I just felt that it was uh, kind of a kind of a fun thing, and it, it it gives you the basis for narratives and scenarios. I like to tell stories with games rather than just line them up and fight. Mm-hmm. And some, some people do enjoy that, and there's no reason you can't do that. But it, it wasn't really what I was trying to do. I was trying to do uh, that thing whereby you're almost creating your own little fantasy story or mm-hmm. series of stories. Uh, and it, I've almost reached the point now where there's no, I'm not really interested in making strictly commercial games. Right. And I, I, increasingly, I find the idea of here's the game and here's the models that go with that game quite irritating. Uh, at Games Workshop, we kind of got away with it because we did so much. Right. It, it, it was quite a we we had the resources to um, produce a, a, a great deal of, of, of options and models for every single army, um, but um, I was looking at ranges of models by any number of people these days, and they're all that's quite interesting stuff. Some beautiful models yeah. and um, some clever ideas, like some Eureka stuff is just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked with um, Ernie Baker on his fantasy game, mm-hmm. which had a similar concept, a very specific background. And he created some quite bizarre monsters as well, as, as I'm sure you remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I thought, well, it just seems a shame that there are all these models. And yet they're all, they're all tied into very specific games, mm-hmm. which so, <sighs> people do start to pick up on them and play them, whatever. But the way things are these days is they just drop them again and start something else. And it's like you're bouncing from one range to another. Yes. Uh, and things are getting just widowed. You know, perfectly good models are just getting widowed all the time. And it, it just felt a little bit, I don't know, slightly frustrating. Yeah. So and um, for those of us who don't have hmm. a lot of time necessarily to learn a new game system every third day and then paint associated models with them, and we end up with these you know, Smog's horde of toy soldiers from a variety of games, and you just look at them and go, I, I don't know what I'm going to use you for, because I don't know anyone yeah. who I can play this game with. But Exactly. Yeah. And, of course, I've got a lot, I say a lot of Warhammer things. I, I, I have some, uh, I have a lot of Orcs and Goblins. Mm-hmm. A lot of Orcs and Goblins that I've collected over the years. Um, start, uh, mostly, and, and they are, I suppose, they're mostly games which are ones now. Um, although a few others, but no, mostly gets workshop figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it just seemed a bit of a shame. I didn't want to play Warhammer. I, I don't, I've not really played Warhammer since the uh, 1990s. But even then, Warhammer was becoming something very commercially driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, lo- losing a lot of its um, open quality. I mean, the original Warhammer was quite an open game. I mean, the original Warhammer World didn't really appear until the second edition, mm. and even then, it was a very portmanteau universe. So, I, what I did is I stitched together all the model ranges that we had at Citadel to create a world out of it, and the world was created out of the models, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so in a sense, it was uh, it was exactly the same thing. You know, we were just trying to accommodate the models that we had, uh, and I thought I'd, I'd be nice to. And I and I, I thought the bolt action system. The, uh, the action die system was a very 
clever system. I'd used it for my Antares game, the uh, science fiction game. Mm -hmm. And the idea of having a fantasy version of Antares was something that was in my mind from the moment I finished Antares, really. So, yeah, so the, the, those are the kind of the motivating forces. And, and I didn't see it as a commercial thing. Uh, originally, I'd intended to write it and um, either self-publish it or, uh, uh, you know, to see if anyone wanted to publish it. But, but it was always going to be an open system. Uh, and uh, uh, because um, because of uh, uh, the relationship I had with Warlord, I, I offered it to Warlord, and um, mm -hmm. after some wing and awing, they took it up. So they very kindly have published what is effectively an open system. Of course, it, it, it does enable Warlord to sell their own fantasy ranges. It does. Um, which, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, what it doesn't do is give a warlord a fantasy universe that's theirs and theirs alone. Right. Because you can't have that's that's not a that's not a possible thing within Erewhon. Um and I think that's healthier. I'm not sure Warlord entirely agree, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but that's what the game is. <laughs> well it, as uh, as someone who's uh for, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, I've played more Warlords of Erewhon in the last twelve months than any other game system. It is the game I'm a huge fan. Um so oh, okay. Just, uh, just quietly for the listeners, I'm slightly biased. However, um, with Warlords, I have played games recently against people who um, have were big fans of the Games Workshop Lord of the Rings game and had armies for that game. And they really yeah. wanted to use their Urukai army, for example. And so they pulled out their Urukai, and I pulled out my Barbarians, and we played a game. And in, I'm sure in my opponent's mind, he was th looking at his army, thinking, here are my orcs. They're Urukai orcs, and I'm playing them this way using the orc list. And I'm sure in his mind he was playing a very, how should I say, uh, Lord of the Ringsy uh, narrative in his mind while we were playing out the game, whereas I was looking at it from more of a Conan background, and I was thinking, this is fantastic. I'm faced, you know, my barbarians are coming forward. I have my Thulsa Doom. Here we go. Let's go. And our, our models were completely different. They're completely different game systems normally, but they're able to fight and interact, and we're able to play out the scenarios that we know and love because it is an open system, like you say. Yeah, that sounds really cool, actually. Yeah. I've got some Urukai as well from the Lord of the Rings range. They're nice figures. Oh, so good. So good. Those yeah. I believe the Perrys did those. They did, yeah, and they're not too big either. Some of the mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings figures got got a bit big towards the end, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but the Urukai still were made fairly early. I think for the first, not for the first film, what the second film? Second film. Yeah, yeah. They're so, but they're they're quite they're quite a good size. You know, they're human esque, human mm -hmm. size on them. Yeah. Yeah. So, Warlords of Erewhon is great for that. Now. Um, that said, and and it should be, I should mention that Warlord, as you say, um, can sell their own fantasy models, and they do have some of their own. Um, but they have uh, on their website started selling some work, some some models from other people's companies, um, just to have models that line up with some of the races that are in Erewhon. And it's something sure. like fifteen pages on the web page now of releases from companies like Lucid Eye, um, uh, TT Combat, 
I mean, you name it, they have models in there from different companies um, whose fantasy models work brilliantly for Erewhon. And you just go, yep, perfect. Plus, Warlords repackage some of their old samurai models um, to match the samurai list. And so, yeah, yeah it's, it's really given Warlord an opportunity to sell a lot of really cool-looking models, uh, some of which they make, some of which they... Um, sell through license but it's it's fantastic that they have that selection available yeah it's, it's useful isn't it um the the lucid eye uh, range in particular i uh i because I, I work with the lucid eye team on mm-hmm. the game i designed for them called the red book of the elf king and that's a very specific piece of ip but the models for it are universal really and that's there's right. some very nice models that um Steve Sauer, who used to work for Games Workshop, he um, and, and for Citadel, uh, and for um, uh, Warlord, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, he he designed he designed them, and uh, you know I really I really like his stuff. And uh, now yeah. you can get them through the Warlord store. So yeah, indeed, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Now, Rick, just to tie this back to um, Warlord a bit more, quite a few Warlord ranges were. Uh, how should I say, Antares adjacent, but they, sorry, not Antares, Warlords adjacent, not uh, Warlords mainstream, so to speak. So there were Celts, there were Romans, there were there were all sorts of models that Warlord games sold that you could, you know, say, okay, these Celts will be Barbarians, I will use the Barbarian list to play Warlords of Erewhon today. In fact, I have played that game many times with my friend Drew, um, where his Celts come out as the barbarian list but in the last uh couple of months maybe six months you have been slowly trickling out historical lists so if you are looking to play uh a fun skirmishy game and you want to leave the magic out you just don't take a mage and there bob's your uncle as the australians would say and you're ready to go um you can take uh samurai romans uh, you can adapt the Olympian list to have to be Greek. Um, there are the Celts, and am I missing any? I believe that's uh, that. well. Uh, the I mean, the barbarians cover Vikings. As well. Yes, they, oh, of course. They, Thank you. Yeah, and they also cover um, horse archery at Huns, mm. horse archer type armies. If you, uh, if you want them to, uh, there's enough in there. And but, the knights. Uh, Yes, and, mm, yeah, and, and the knights—they nice. they cover medieval uh, arms broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and that's, but that that sort of reflects the way in which fantasy has actually grew up. You know, <laughs> you know it did start out with those historical um, kind of ideas, at mm. least. Um, yeah, no, uh, the, the barbarian army was always originally intended to cover that broad range of historical or mythic, historical, legendary kind of subjects, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, uh, I, I just thought it'd be interesting to um, do a couple of historical bits. When um, SPQR came out, um, mm-hmm. there was a, a notion at the time that perhaps we could use Erewhon as a basis for a historical skirmish on those lines. And I thought, well, there's no point. I mean, SPQR was ready to go. Mm-hmm. And it seemed, um, it would have been a lot of work for me to have done it. And I thought, yeah, listen, no, let's not worry about it. I'll, what I'll do is I'll just. Uh, adapt some uh, of the current army lists into more accurately historical lists, if you mm-hmm. like. Um, and uh, particularly Romans and Barbarians, because that's my thing. Yeah. Um, so 
Romans and Celts to start with. And I, I could easily, I, I've actually got a half done sort of Spanish list, but to be honest, when you start getting, it's very difficult to make them different. Mm. You know, they, they do tend to end up very much the same sort of thing. Um, and the Celt list I've, I've divided into two types. You can either go uh, ancient Britons, which is chariot heavy, mm-hmm. or you can go Gauls, which is more infantry and cavalry heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that and that does reflect historical difference to some uh, to some extent. And in terms of a war band, you know, you've always got more variety than you have in a an army. An army you want something to be typical of an actual army that fought an actual battle. Uh, whereas when you go warband, you can go, well, this is a mob of something. Mm-hmm. It could be a mob of escaped gladiators. Right. You know, or it could be some Celts all chariot-born. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, so, um, uh, you, you know, you can, you, it's easier to uh, adapt in that sense. Yeah. So I'm not sure what to do next, really. I could do a pure Greek army. Before. The historical armies are easy for me because I've done so much research on them over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've written there's Warhammer Ancient Battles, Warmaster Ancients, mm-hmm. um, uh, and then um, uh, Hail Caesar. Exactly. So, so that's three entire game systems, all of which have their own armadas, um, and two of which I did the research, such as it was. I mean, uh, you, you can only do so much. On the actual army list, so I've got stacks of reference material. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's relatively easy to do. Well, Rick, yeah. I've asked you previously what you were going to do for Erewhon next. And yeah. um, every single time you throw out some pretty fantastic ideas, and then those are now all out. Um, I remember you talked about the Ratmen, you talked about the Lizardmen, you talked about, um, you even talked about the Celts coming up, and they are the most recent list that have come out. Um, I know you mentioned the Samurai at one point, and that list, um, you know, changed dramatically from its playtest version to what it is now um, to be far more inclusive of more historical units. So you're really adding to this game as you go. I guess you're kind of talking about that now, but. Do you have any burning itches or any twinkles in your eye that uh, for anything that uh, Erewhon fans can look forward to? Well, Brad, as you know, uh, we have talked about this uh, ourselves, haven't we? And um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I really would like to do is get a demon list sorted out or some sort of system for demons. And um, again, it's that thing where you want to create a system that allows people to build supernatural demonic armies mm-hmm. in that very broad concept term that could be your Nurgle or force or it could mm-hmm. be a corn force if you happen to have those mm-hmm. but it could equally be a Hieronymus Bosch force exactly or something drawn from all of those D&D demon types and whatever mm-hmm. something from Christian myth or something that's hellish from Greek myth or you that know, you could it, use to make an army of angels for example yeah, if you wanted to, yeah, you go down that um, uh, uh, that route. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been thinking about how to do that, and you know, when I, I've, I've thrown a few ideas onto the Facebook page. It's always very useful, actually. Some very uh, some very good ideas come up from other people there, which I'm not uh, not afraid to steal. I, I <laughs> <fully> admit, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's always interesting to see what people say. 
fact that when it comes to demons, they tend to get people do tend to get into specifics very quickly. Yes. It wouldn't be a good idea to do this specific thing. And, you, and I go, yeah, that's quite a cool idea, but actually, I need to go the other way. So yeah. it's useful to have the ideas for specifics because it it gives you a sense of what people are expecting. Yes. Um, but at the same time, mechanically, I need to do something that's more uh, adaptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what I'm thinking at the moment is really having a, a system whereby I just come up with a series of demonic special abilities mm-hmm. that interact with the game in a different way than all the special abilities. So, for example, I mean, one of the ones which I just threw out there on Facebook, actually, which I, is um, imagine you've got a unit, and every time you give it an order, it automatically drops a pin onto every enemy unit within 10 inches. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be because... It's got a foul stench. Mm-hmm. It's horrible beyond belief. It could just be that it has this aura of miasma, of confusion, bewilderment around it. Mm-hmm. It could be it's casting uh, a kind of, I don't know, a, like an aura of lust, you know, right. sort of visions of beaches, and it's uh, totally distracting and people are going crazy. Or it could be, you know, a pe- uh, it could almost be um, a, a, a pain or agony that fills me. You know, anything you like. Now, what I'll is come up with suggestions of things it could be mm-hmm. but i only describe it in terms of the mechanic yes so you've got some i'll give it a name that's got some character to it but it, mm-hmm. it's um but essentially it's a you choose that ability it might be 25 points for the unit you know it'll, it might be quite expensive um and that unit has that ability uh and if i do a whole string of different abilities Another one I'm playing with at the moment, which is, is, I'm not sure I can get it to work, but the idea is after this unit has taken its turn, mm-hmm. it turns over and all the dice come out of the bag and you start oh, again. Oh, 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 that would be awful. <laughs> that could be really bad. No, the problem yeah. I've got with it is, is this thing whereby you go, well, I'll just use that unit, I'll just use that unit. You just keep using that yeah. unit over and over again. Could so you do it just... Out. Could you use it maybe as a once a game action? Like yeah. it, you can only do this once, but man, when it does, whoo! Yeah, yeah, you could do that. Um, it, 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 that makes it even harder to give it a points value because yes, how do you, how do you how do you know you're going to get to use it at all? How do you know there's going to be an opportunity? But when you do use it, you'll only ever use it when it's effective. So you have to kind of uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's that sort of thing. You get mm-hmm. the idea. I do. Yeah, that's and, cool. That's, and, and that's that might a very be cool a time idea. twist. Yeah, and they have to be like that. They have to be reality warping, or or uh, uh, otherwise affecting other units. Um, yeah. And uh, and the idea is every you could choose one ability, like the same ability or different abilities, for each unit. Um, in some cases, I want to go you can only have one of this ability in an army so for example the ability to cast magic you might go only one unit can have that mm-hmm. uh, and then you you, you can you, you can uh, uh, allocate it to a, a unit that effectively becomes your wizard now it could be a literal wizard you know a sorcerer an evil sorcerer or a demonic sorcerer or a demon that's got that power or it could just be a unit of troops who then become as a unit so they have that magical ability um, yeah, and so uh, uh, what I've been using at the moment is a system whereby you choose 
these abilities for your units. Mm -hmm. Not all units necessarily get one. It's up to you whether you want to spend the points or not. Right. But when that unit, when a unit's destroyed, if it has a special ability, you can reallocate the special ability to a unit that doesn't have an ability. Ooh. Or you can reallocate it to a unit that does have an ability, but you just exchange the abilities. Oh, okay. Nice. Which is interesting. Mm. Yeah. What it does is it almost gives you ability to put, give a special ability to a unit, say, I don't know, demonic hounds, run them in, use their special ability, but they get destroyed, but then bounce the special ability to the unit behind them. Right. And come in again. You know, you can do that. Ah. It's a, it, so immediately it's given you a dynamic that's utterly different from all the other armies. And yet you um, need to make those decisions tactically during the game. Ooh, which special ability do I want to keep? Do I want to keep the yeah. one that for the unit that it already has or the one for the unit that I just lost? So yeah, you have to make those decisions, them. yeah. Yeah, and you combine them, not, not on the same unit, but you combine them within the army, mm. and suddenly you've got the ability to work out an interesting um, way of fighting that army right. that's tailored. My problem with that, is that anything that's tailorable in that way becomes very exploitable. Yes. So, so actually coming up with a, a system that's retaining that fun and the entertainment of it all, mm -hmm. but not destroying, well, not the making game, the game yeah. just, you know, a, a game overturn one type of thing. Um, yeah, and, we as gamers do like to break things. Exactly. It, and my rule of thumb with these things is whatever you do, the minute you've got something that can be manipulated, i.e. I combine this with this in an unexpected way, it's worth a lot of points. So I tend to overpoint things um, that, that have got that ability simply because I know that whatever I do with it, somebody will think of something better very quickly indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, so so you, know, you just try and balance it out. But there you go. That's that's the idea. In normal circumstances, what I'd do is I'd work at that idea until I'd got it fairly well balanced. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, because nobody's allowed out to do any gaming, what can you do? Mm -hmm. Well, Rick, I've asked um, Andy Chambers and Alessio recently sort of the same question. I know we've kind of discussed this in the past, and but I think it's tangential to what you're just is discussing right now is once a game has gone out to the public or an army list has gone out to the public um, and you start looking at um, you know frequently asked questions or you realize maybe something needs an errata how how is social media I mean given that we're all sort of at home at the moment, looking at social media, that is our way of interacting. Um, how much does social media affect um, the way that you approach a game once it's out in the wild? Uh, well, it's a very good way of getting feedback. Um, mm. you, I'm always wary of very rapid feedback. Sometimes people will, will, will give you feedback along the lines of, I've been reading this, and this is obviously a mistake. And you look at it and you go, Yep, he's right. Yeah, <laughs> that was very obviously a mistake. It's got past the proofing. It's got past the editing. It's got you know nobody noticed it, mm -hmm. and, it and it's basically a mistake. You know, a number is four here and ten there. Yeah, it cannot be both. Right. You know, those those things, those kind of things. It's great to have the feedback. It's a little bit disheartening as a game designer because you go through all that process, mm -hmm. and I think what's happened there is you've become blind to something. You're yes. just reading over things. 
Um, so uh, it, it, yeah, things get do get through. Um, uh, and as I say, it's a bit disheartening because you know you you've got this book in your hand and you spent the best part of a year or more mm. working on it and you've polished it and you've perfected it and you think you've read it so many times that it just become you know you dream it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then somebody points out there's this blindingly obvious mistake in it. <laughs> you go, oh, damn. Exactly. Yeah, you know, your heart drops out and you go, well, that would have been just so easy to have fixed if mm -hmm. I'd known that. If you'd seen and it. Then, but that's the thing. Your brain self-corrects it as you are reading it because you know what it's supposed to be. That's why sometimes those cold, the cold readers are the ones who find those things and not you. Yeah, um, yeah that's absolutely right. Uh, unfortunately, the editing process is something where you, you could proofread something that's perfectly wrong without realizing it's wrong. Right. Uh, because you're describing a rules mechanic. Mm-hmm. So, and you described it two different ways that could be interpreted two different ways, but a proofreader won't notice that. Um, an editor should, but someone who's just proofreading probably won't. Mm -hmm. um, because unless they're a gamer themselves, or unless they've got some understanding. And it's the same with numbers and charts. Proofreaders generally don't get numbers and charts, because you, how can you, unless you know how the chart's constructed, mm -hmm. You, you know, you, it's very difficult to know where mistakes occur. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, they'll get things like, ah, that's a semicolon, you know, that should be a common. They get <laughs> things like that, bless yep. them. But you don't, they don't tend to get some of the real gamer techni technical stuff. You need a technical gaming editor for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway. Or a gamer. Yeah. To, <laughs> yeah, or, well, you say, yes, uh, but then you need it to be, and I need it by 4.30. You know? And I think yeah. that's the other thing people don't always appreciate is that the schedules you're working to are yeah. quite vicious. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. This has come back from the printer. He's going to be throwing the printing presses going to be uh, uh, tomorrow morning. We need this now. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've given things to, to people who I know are very good um, editor proofreaders. And actually, I say Nick Simpson is one of those. And he will get everything. But he won't get it if you say you've got two hours. Yeah. It'll take, take you weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, so you, you're grateful for what you get, but you know you can't. It won't. It, it, it's not practical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so that happens. So that that's that's one aspect of uh, uh, the uh, uh, online feedback. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is um, you, you you see where people are enthusiastic and you see where people would like the game to go and it gives you it inspires you. You think, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I could do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you participate in it in that way. Um, uh, and, and you also get things where often people are going, oh, I don't understand this. And then that tells you two things. Firstly, you haven't explained it properly. Mm -hmm. um, or they haven't read it properly. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. and, and it can be both. But on the whole, you have to think first, well, even if they haven't read it properly, perhaps you should have explained it better. Yeah. Um, so you look at it. And sometimes you've got a situation where you go, yeah, I have explained it properly, but I can see where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, where really you don't need that doesn't need an errata. What that needs is for somebody to say, oh, no, it is this, mm -hmm. and as you might expect, and as most people have already assumed, it is this. And I, and I think that's fine. I think if you start erratering things which are just slight misunderstandings in the English, you, you end up writing a new book. Yes, um, and and you cause also you cause as many issues as you solve. 
by trying to explain things in too much detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have the problem that English isn't universally English everywhere. No. So no, an American English, an English English, a British English, have slightly different nuances of meaning. And there are some words which are interpreted one way in America and a different way in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's um, and that's something to be very aware of. It's particularly true with um, may do this mm-hmm. and can do this. Yes. They, they have different, slightly different shades of meaning in English than they do in American. That's right. Uh, uh, slightly, yeah, yeah. American English is slightly more formal, actually, in its more formal version. Than, than is English English, um, uh, and uh, and so on. Uh, and and I, can't, I can't answer for Australian English. <laughs> I imagine it's more like British English, but it, it probably is a, its own thing. It is, and it's also, some, well, it's somewhere in between the two, but it is also its yeah. own animal many times. And as, uh, as an American who teaches children Australian yeah. English, let me tell you, they got to look things up all the time. <laughs> Yes, I can well imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, so so there's that, and of course, my English isn't necessarily uh, standard English anyway. It's uh, it's likely to be of my generation, of my uh, my background. Mm-hmm. So some, and I tend to be quite colloquial. I I, I write in a fairly, um, I, I don't write a terribly formal English. I try and make, uh, you know, I try and keep it quite light. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I. I so sometimes I think that that throws people. Um, yeah. So you know, you can't you can't necessarily help it, but it's useful to know. It um, is it is fun though. I did um, the very first time I sat down with my friend Dave to uh, try Arrowon for the very first time. He and I sat down with the rule book. We both read it um, separately, and then we sat down to play it together. And we put dwarves out on the table and barbarians out on the table, and we sort of pushed some units around to see how they interacted. And um, as we were chatting about how the rules interacted, um, I think it was Dave pointed out, man, these rules feel very Rick. Um, just the way yeah. they're written, like you can hear his voice in the right. And it was, and it, 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 it stuck to me, and that was years ago. But yes, it, the Erewhon rules, if you grew up playing Rick Priestley games, it feels Rick. And it sounds like Rick. It it was um it was a very welcome experience for me as a gamer, and I don't necessarily enjoy reading rule books. Um, however, I enjoyed reading the Erewhon book very much, and it was just that it was just that moment of, ah, oh, this feels familiar. I like this. Yes, let's do this. Yeah, cool. So, oh, yeah. that's really nice of you to say so. Yeah, I that's really that's uh, that's good to hear. Mm. Yeah, it's good to hear. Yeah, it, well, I mean, it's um. Yeah, it did feel very like going back to something I did years ago as well. Yes. If you read some of the very early Warhammer, I mean, I read some of the early Warhammer, mm-hmm. and I, 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 it's such a long time since I wrote any of that that I don't really recognise that I wrote it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I, but as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, actually, this is, I can see what what was going on in my head at the time. And it does, it, it, to some extent, I was better at, at, at some of that very light very humorous stuff then than I am now. It's, it's, I was obviously a, a young, young, enthusiastic and cheerful person in those days. Mm-hmm. Well, you're still happened. cheerful, Rick. Uh, I actually, <laughs> that's, I was, that's the tea. 
<laughs> uh, I was, I was as we uh, right before we started recording. Uh, my wife and I have been doing a lot of reading uh, this this last couple of days because you know uh, taking a break from the TV. And uh, I was reading my uh, circa. I'm trying to figure out what year this is. 1988 copy of the Warhammer Fantasy role play book. Um, and your name is on the inside cover as one of the game developers. And uh, I was just flipping through it, thinking, "Yep, yep." There's this. This feels. It's it's good to go back and reread and look at and um, just those those classic books. But so many. As I was reading it, I was thinking, "Ooh, I could use that in Erewhon. Ooh, I could use that in Erewhon. Ooh, hmm, that's a good idea." Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just one of those because it is that open world fantasy. The second I read anything fantasy related, I've been listening to a lot of Conan uh, audiobooks recently. Again, hmm, Monkey Army. Hmm. Yeah. 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 There you go. By the way, well, Warlord you, sells you those models. Who, a good range of monkeys. Yeah, Warlord yeah. sells them. That's where I got mine. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I may have heard the, uh, the what is it, uh, Conan and the Black Coast? I can't think of the name of the story. I think Queen of the Black Sails, something like that. Right. But uh, there, is an, there is a monkey, spoilers, there are monkeys in that. And uh, yeah. uh, yes, I may have uh, ordered a <clears throat> monkey army. But anyway, um, <laughs> for Erewhon. But yes. Well, Rick, if it's one thing that people are talking about in the gaming world at the moment, uh, if it's not um, Tabletop Simulator, and that is the game that allows you to play a lot of the games that we like to play on the tabletop on a computer with someone else online, it's the other word, which is solo. Now, Erewhon, because of its order die system, can be played um, in, a, in a solo manner. You can do that. Um, but have you had any thoughts recently about how to maybe adapt Erewhon or other games that you've worked on for solo play? I mean, you are someone who has a lot of experience developing rules and rule sets. Um, for those of us who are looking to possibly play by ourselves these days, do you have any hot tips or ideas or things that you're working on? Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because um, one of the things about being a games designer and not working as part of a studio or team, because I'm on my own really these days, mm. is you do spend a lot of time playing solo games. Mm. So to some extent, you've already, your head is there already. Right. Um, and uh, with the um, uh, all the bolt-action dice system, the action dice system, mm-hmm. uh, it has, I've always kind of used used that as a sort of decision-maker, because what you, you tend to do is you, you, you create your scenario and you, you, you try and play both sides, don't you? Yes. You reach a position invariably with a unit. You go, well, I could do this or I could do that. And mm-hmm. traditionally with bolt action, what I've always done is gone, well, roll the dice, you know, the action dice, to give you one result or another usually. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say roll, roll down. I wouldn't do that. It's say like, this unit's going to either go, uh, it's either going to move or it's going to shoot. Mm-hmm. And you roll the dice until you get a move or a shoot action. Oh, nice. Uh, and that sort of thing. So I've always traditionally done that because it's, well, you can roll a d6 if you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's just a, it's just a way of going. Well, let's randomise it to some extent. Um, but what uh, what I've been working on for uh, more recently, because I thought you know, it might be nice to just write up a formal solo system for everyone. Um, and I'm thinking everyone in particular because that's just what I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Um, just to kind of give uh, people, including myself, 
you know, way of producing a game that feels a little bit more like you, 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 you're creating a movie, you know, mm. something's happening, rather than having to pretend to be one player and then pretend to be somebody else, which, which can do your head in after a while. Yes. You start to forget who you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You can imagine. And, and what, I've, what I've come up with is a system where basically units get allocated a core type. So this type is going to be core um, sh- a shock unit. Mm-hmm. And this unit is going to be a core skirmish unit. And this unit is a, uh, you know, a core, uh, it's a warrior unit or something. Um, so you allocate a core type to each of your units. And then in your turn, when you allocate it a dice, um, when it draws the dice from the bag and you allocate it, mm-hmm. you roll the dice and then you cross-reference the dice result with the um, its core type to see what it does. Oh. So a shock unit, given a run order, will always charge. Given an advance order, will always charge if it can, i.e. it'll turn into a run, right. but will always go forward. If you roll, uh, and so on and so forth. And if you roll a down... You either re-roll or in some circumstances you you, you, you do nothing or default to your core t- uh, type. Right. So it, it, it kind of, depending on what your core type is, the dice roll will give you your default action or something approximating your default action oh, most of clever. the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the only thing I'm not sure about is how expansive it becomes. Mm. <laughs> you know, the trouble is that you, you, you get to a point of if, in this circumstance, do this. If this, do this. If this, do that. You get a lot of conditional stuff very quickly. Um, but uh, that's what I've been messing around with. Yeah. And I quite, I'm, I'm going to try and develop it. I need to develop it quite quickly, though, because, you know, there's no point in having a solo game system just in time for when we were all laid out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Come on. Yeah, we're going to want to play by ourselves in six months, right? When we're well, all yeah. out again, you know, hopefully, well, I, knock on wood, we're out well before six months. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's that's kind of what I've been messing around with with, uh, with solo. But we'll see. We'll see. If I can get something together, I'll uh, I'll I'll certainly be pushing it at uh, uh, out of Warlord. So we'll see. There already is a solo system for bolt action, which I think somebody uh, did cards for. They did. Uh, it is in one of the books. Uh, I was looking at it the other day. Um, I think it was John Lamstead wrote those. Okay, yeah, I believe. Um, and yes, there there is a card system. Um, but having played a lot of solo bolt action over the years, I think the uh, the order dice themselves work very well as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's not a great leap of imagination to sort of start to use the dice mm-hmm. to give you a randomized result, exactly. but you need to find a way of, you know, converting a randomized result into a sensible result. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've often thought, you know, tried to play it as both sides of the table, and then sometimes if it's one of those things, uh, just go with the old four up, um, or an Erewhon six yeah. up. Uh, because it's a 10-sided dice. On a 1 through 5, they'll do this. On a 5 through 10, they'll do that. Roll. Okay, yeah. cool. That's what Got I do go. traditionally, something like that. Mm. Um, uh, just because you, know, you you need to play out situations sometimes. And um, the thing about game design is you usually go, right, I'll, I'll manipulate the situation. And then you work it through. And then you go back and you change one of the variables and you work it through again. So you're not really playing a game. What you're doing is you're just setting something up and seeing how it all works. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and that doesn't quite give you the same thing. No. <laughs> it, it tells you something about the mechanic, but it doesn't tell you and the variables and the degree of mm. uh, uh, the effect of changing it, individual elements. But it, what it doesn't do is give you that story that you, that right. and this is what happened. And that in and of itself is what sort of helps create the the fun of what's happening on the tabletop. So, you know, that is an important element. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's what games are about, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Creating that narrative. Well, yeah. Rick, um, I hate to say this. I think our time is largely up. We have been chatting for an hour now, and I think, uh, I think it's time that we... Uh, say goodbye but as always it is a pleasure to have you on uh, i find that you know when i chat with you our t- it's just time flies we never get through everything and it is always a pleasure please come back soon i'd love to talk to you again about this or anything else um you always have some great stories about um you know game design and gaming of old and gaming of new so thank you again for coming on the warlord cast you're very, very welcome, uh, uh, Brad, and uh, it's always a pleasure to catch up. Speak again soon. Definitely. And guys, okay. if, as I said before, if, if you're looking for more Warlords of Erewhon uh, content, of course, you can go to the Warlord Games website. They have quite a few of the new Warlords of Erewhon army lists uh, in the Warlords of Erewhon section. I know the Samurai list is in there. Um, the FAQs are in there. Uh, and as I said, I think there is literally 15 pages of really fantastic fantasy models from countless game systems uh, and companies that Warlord sells through their site. And they make quite a few of their own awesome models. Those samurai models are gorgeous. So if you have not had a chance to get in there uh, and take a look and you are interested at all in Warlords of Erewhon, do it. It is. It's a fantastic, inclusive game system. It's easy to pick up. You don't need huge armies to play, and you can just run an amazing assortment of models on the tabletop and have a really good time doing it. I say this as a big fan who has done it lots and who loves the game. Um, now, guys, if you want um, to see some of the other army lists that we talked about today, the Celts, for example, uh, the Romans, if you want to look at the, the Ratters or the Samurai or any of the other lists, or you want to see some of the updated lists from the core book, all of those are available for free from Rick's website, which is thisgaminglife.uk. Am I saying that right, Rick? Uh, yeah, it's also rickpriestley.com. Boom. They're both both earls will get you to the same place fantastic and yes so go check that out remember if you are just warlords of erewhon curious and you don't necessarily own the rule book if you go to that website and you download any of the army lists um, if you look at it the first uh, page or three in some cases are the designer notes and rick lays out um sort of some some basic ideas of how those armies work. Then you can see the army list and all of the special rules, all of the weapons, all of the statistics that that particular army uses is in that PDF. Um, so if you want to get a feel for an army and say, if you happen to really like undead and you want to see if you can make an army using that undead list before you necessarily buy into the game, um, I say this knowing that you can make almost any army using those lists. Um, please go check it out because uh, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised at what you can make. It's very cool and very inclusive. Um, and guys, if you have uh, feedback for the show, I've had a huge number of you uh, messaging recently saying how much you're enjoying this series. Uh, thank you very much for listening. 
please continue to listen, um, and uh, we will try and get to all the game systems that you mentioned. Uh, I Again, there will be another one of these episodes coming up soon, and there will be another full-size episode uh, discussing Victory at Sea soon as well, because I know there's a lot of excitement about that, me included. Uh, but again, if you would like to message me, uh, if you go to my personal podcast page, that's Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you message the Facebook page, um, I'm the only one who answers it. My name is Brad. Hi. I'd love to hear from you. But ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for listening. Uh, we know at the Warlord Cast that podcasts don't cost money, but we do know they do cost time, and your time is precious, and we appreciate you spending your time listening to us today. Thank you very much for listening, and uh, we wish you safety and uh, well, uh, good health in these uh, crazy times. So thank you, and good night.